It's the 18th of July, 2015, and this is episode 231. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Hi, and welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. I'm Adam B. Levine, the Editor-in-Chief, and today we're joined by Stephanie Murphy, one of my stalwart companions in this multi-year trek into the unknown. Stephanie, how are you doing today? It's great to be with you, Adam. I'm glad to hear I'm a stalwart. Yes, a stalwart. I like that word. It's one of my favorite (laughs) ones. We haven't recorded in a couple of weeks because you have been at Porkfest, and then there was something, you had a birthday before that. Happy birthday, by the way. Oh, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a busy summer so far. I did go to Porkfest, the Porcupine Freedom Festival, which is basically a libertarian camping festival out in the middle of the woods out in northern New Hampshire. We've talked about it on the show before because I go to it every year and it's always a really enjoyable event for me. You know, every year it gets more and more Bitcoin. There's more and more people using Bitcoin to buy stuff. Internet is always a challenge at Porkfest, but they have unique solutions that sort of try to get implemented over the years. It's interesting because a lot of people compare it to Burning Man. And with Burning Man, the culture there, as I understand it, I'm not a burner myself, but we've heard from a few on the show. And they say, you know, the culture there is really like a gift economy, whereas libertarians are way more focused on market forces and capitalism. (laughs) And so there were some people trying to start little businesses to supply Wi-Fi to the campground or to certain areas of the campground. And there was also somebody who tried to sort of blanket the whole campground and make it work for free. So it was really interesting to see those. But the internet situation was a lot better this year, enabling a lot more ease of Bitcoin transactions. People were buying everything with Bitcoin <laughs> from t-shirts and pins. I bought a cup of delicious iced tea. It was like jasmine fruit iced tea at the tea house food and all kinds of other stuff with Bitcoin. There was a Bitcoin tent, like an inflatable tent. At first, it looked like a bouncy house. And I was really (laughs) excited about that, a Bitcoin bounce house. But it turned out to be an inflatable tent. And underneath it was like a booth where people could stop by and ask questions and get set up with Bitcoin. I actually talked to a few sort of like bit curious people. It amazes me that even at an event like Porkfest, where I would think everybody already has a Bitcoin wallet who wants one, you know, I helped a few people get set up with their first Bitcoin wallets out in the woods, which was pretty surprising to me and, and amazing. And I always keep a little bit of Bitcoin on my phone just for that purpose. So, Stephanie, one of the things that you were telling me before we started recording was that this event has been getting less silver and more Bitcoin over the last couple of years while, while you were going. How much silver did you see there this year relative to last year? <laughs> I saw zero silver. Oh, actually, I take that back. There is a, was a vending machine with um silver dimes that you could buy, but you could buy it with Bitcoin, like the vending machine took Bitcoin. So <laughs> I don't think that counts. So yeah, silver is like so three years ago at Porkfest. <laughs> well, with that fancy internet. Yeah, exactly. Libertarians are moving into the 21st century with their alternative currencies. But it has been just really interesting to watch that happen. Um, as we've said many times on the show, I just remember people struggling to make change and buying and having these like 10th ounce silver rounds that they would just take specifically to Porkfest and wouldn't be able to spend all the rest of the year, myself included. So it's cool to see Bitcoin just taking off so much. So I I, I am curious about one more thing. Um, 
we have in the past kind of discussed how Bitcoin has been changing and how Bitcoin is getting less libertarian as time goes on because it's yeah. diluting and there's a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff is going on and it's diluting that original core style word, there's that word again, of libertarians uh, who, who really in large part got this thing started. Um, yeah, they did know, and they don't get enough credit for it. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Again, like the people who are least satisfied with the existing system have the most reason to use, you know, alternative systems. So it kind of makes sense why people who really dislike the way we do our monetary system would think that Bitcoin was a pretty neat thing way back in the day. You have said that it is a little demoralizing to you to see this and that you're less interested now than you were then. And yet, you know, it seems like Bitcoin is continuing to kind of encroach into this space where harder monies that were traditional libertarian types of currencies have been. Did you feel like uh, other people there who like maybe were early Bitcoiners were feeling the same as you? Or was it still mm -hmm. mostly like an optimistic environment for the future of this sort of technology? I did talk to a lot of early Bitcoiners about that very question. They did share my feelings. They, they were feeling a little bit, one person described it as in limbo about Bitcoin, feeling like, uh, what's going on here? Uh, you know, I'm not really sure the last couple of months how I feel about it. A lot of people were very resigned, I guess, about Bitcoin, that it's going mainstream and that means it's less fun for people like us who are outside the box kind of thinkers. I still see things to be excited about glimmers of hope. Like, you know, the guy that I talked to who got set up with his first uh, Bitcoin wallet that was like my campsite neighbor. That was cool at Porkfest. And then just the other day, I had a voiceover client that I talked to because I am a voice actor. So I interface with a lot of non-Bitcoin or non-Liberty people in my job. And I had a client who had gotten in touch with me just randomly through my website. We talked on the phone about the project and it turned out that he was really curious about Bitcoin. He had heard of it and like had some questions about it, but was interested in learning more. So we ended up chatting about Bitcoin quite a bit. And that was cool for me. There are reasons to be hopeful, but again, like Andreas likes to say, there are still a lot of people out there who don't know about Bitcoin. There are some fetishes that have larger communities than the Bitcoin <laughs> community still is. And it's important to keep that in perspective, even as we may whine and lament, or some of us may whine and lament about it being too mainstream to be fun or cool anymore. <laughs> well, on the mainstream note, let's pivot the conversation a little bit. We're going to start off by talking a little bit about block size as kind of setting the stage for this. But I think that there's a larger conversation to be had here. And so I, I really, I'd like to go into it with you again, Stephanie, because you have this strong kind of, I kind of see your position as a very prototypical libertarian position. You know, you're interested in it explicitly for those reasons. And so things that dilute it make it less interesting. And I think that this is something that, that that's going to be important as time goes on. Uh, so let's just get into it. So the block size limit, we've talked about it on the past show, uh, on, on past shows with Gavin and with Peter Todd and with Andreas. The conversation has certainly continued. Uh, Mike Kern went on to Epicenter Bitcoin and, uh, and had a long conversation with them essentially about it. And it's, this is a, continues to be a contentious issue. Over the last two weeks, we've seen repeated stress tests that are essentially being used to prove a point about Bitcoin and block sizes and the UTXO pool and all of these other things that have kind of been hypothetical problems. And so somebody who wanted to make this point or multiple somebodies decided to make them non-hypothetical problems. And they're kind of being addressed in some ways to fix the specific problems that have come up. I'm curious, Stephanie, do you have a strong opinion? If the decision was up to you, would we be increasing block sizes or would we be leaving them the way that they are? 
And what would cause your opinion to change on that, if anything? And again, keeping in mind, just want to mention for the, the listeners, Stephanie and I are not technical experts in this in the slightest. Andreas, you know, is closer to the technical expert side, but even he, again, we're all just kind of, this is our opinion. So Stephanie, your thoughts? First of all, I wouldn't leave it up to me. I don't know the answer, right? I think the market knows the answer. So solutions like incentivized nodes, even the Lightning Network, those are interesting to me, and I'd like to see them get tried and sort of have an organic evolution toward whatever makes the most sense. I don't like top-down solutions in anything, including Bitcoin. I can't say I'm a huge fan of the whole, just let's go to a 20 megabyte block size right now, and let's do a hard fork to do it. I agree it's been a contentious discussion you know, that everybody seems to have strong opinions about, but at the end of the day, I trust the market. I trust the wisdom of the crowds. I trust that an organic, natural solution will work itself out and present itself. I know there's been this stress test lately to make a point. I still think we have time to figure it out and we don't need to rush toward a solution right now or Bitcoin's going to die. I've been a really strong believer and I continue to be a really strong believer in market-based solutions. But in this particular situation, I don't understand the incentives and it creates a problem for me trying to rationalize what is the correct solution based on the information that we have. Well, it's complicated. Well, yeah, it's not only complicated, but there really isn't, it seems to be a right answer because depending on what you are attempting to do with Bitcoin, you would want different things. So that's really hard when you don't have one specific dude, you know, dude is a non-gender specific term, (laughs) (laughs) right? When you don't have one person who is, you know, in charge of that decision making, I heard Mike Kern make the argument the other day. I clipped it, but I don't, I can't, I've lost the clip since then, making the argument that Gavin should effectively be a dictator and should just like ban people who are disagreeing to the point where it's causing the problem to slow down. And I don't necessarily think that that's a good solution either. But at the same time, you can see why something like that is attractive because Bitcoin is somewhat unique in terms of projects. Most projects aren't developed by committee. And yet Bitcoin, because it hasn't had, because there's always been this hyper awareness, right, of Bitcoin is a decentralized project. So anybody trying to, to control it, that's an inherently bad thing. So you see people like Gavin who are influential, but they don't actually pull the lever. They don't actually have the ability to make it happen themselves, because if they did, they would effectively be turning themselves into the enemy from everybody who believes that Bitcoin is at its core about decentralization. And turning themselves into the target, as Andreas likes to point out as well. You know, the minute that somebody has ultimate control over Bitcoin, it becomes about, okay, how can we influence them to do whatever XYZ special interests wants Bitcoin to do? And that's dangerous. And that's the whole reason Bitcoin was created is because there is no figurehead. There is no central planner to go after and try to use that to manipulate it. And I think that's a really good argument. And I totally buy that argument, which is why I look at the situation we have now with something like the block size. And outside of somebody just doing it, I don't really understand how this sort of thing gets resolved. And that's the thing that I am trying to kind of wrap my head around is how does a solution that has multiple people who all have essentially equal say in terms of being able to contribute mm-hmm. when they fundamentally disagree with each other because they have different, you know, different uh, agendas. And and that's something that, again, is totally expected in Bitcoin. Bitcoin is supposed to be neutral, but it's these changes that are inherently not neutral. And so somebody necessarily needs to lose. That's the thing is it's like we have options in terms of how Bitcoin as a project, as a software project is managed. 
We could have a dictatorship, we could have a democracy, we could have design by committee, but none of them really seem like they're good options to me at all. And so I'm kind of left scratching my head about what really the path forward can be on issues that are contentious in this way. Just from a psychological perspective, people are tend to be uncomfortable with uncertainty. You know, they want to know what's going to happen and have a plan, and at least some people do. I think we have to embrace the uncertainty a little bit. The fact that this is still a debate and still a question means that there isn't such an imbalance of power. There isn't one powerful party that's just coming down with the decision. It means it's still being hashed out, if you'll pardon the pun. <laughs> and that's a good thing. And we need to be okay with not having it resolved right away and sort of letting this all play out, I think. There's not always clear solutions in decentralized systems. That's okay. It's almost like if you think about evolution and nature, there are evolutionary arms races, battles that go on between insects, between bacteria and fungi and all, all kinds of other stuff within groups of a species between, you know, members or tribes or subspecies. And those are playing themselves out all the time and where there's not a clear winner. Out of those, all kinds of relationships develop, symbiotic ones, uh, competitive ones, cooperative ones. And it's all just this natural, organic order of things. I know I keep coming back to those terms, but if we can just sort of sit back and not want to control and plan everything about something like Bitcoin, which is, in a sense, its own kind of organism, I think that'll be the key and we just need to be okay with it. What's the catalyst then to end that state, though? Because again, like you talk about evolution and evolutionary pressures when they come to bear on a species, usually, you know, it involves like the species making a change or dying. And I mean, like, that's the thing that incentivizes the change in evolutionary systems many, uh, you know, much of the time. Yeah, it's to adapt to the demands of the environment. And with Bitcoin, I guess you, if you want to take that analogy further with Bitcoin, the environment would be what users of Bitcoin value and what they want to do with Bitcoin and what they want to get out of it. And so, as Bitcoin can adapt to their needs, it will survive and grow and become stronger. Or maybe new species will emerge from that. Some other thing will emerge that meets those needs for people. It just keeps going like that. So evolution, though, again, not a like binary process where this species becomes this species explicitly. Sometimes a species can become many species. You look at, you know, uh, islands that uh, haven't had predators for a long time and birds there lose the ability to fly. They lose, they adapt to their environment, but there's not necessarily, again, a right way forward, right? So that's, that's the thing is that if we look at both of these options and we assume that both options are reasonable and both options will work, then again, how do you pick or do you not pick? Should there really be two Bitcoins, one that continues in a decentralized direction and one that continues in a more centralized direction? And again, how do you even define those two things? Because one could argue that something like the Lightning Network, where you are effectively taking transactions off the blockchain, even though you're validating on the blockchain and there's no trust involved or anything like that, it is still a system that involves a third party. And to a large degree, Bitcoin is about services and provide, you know, providing these connections that don't involve third parties. So is it more, quote, Bitcoin to use the Lightning Network, or is it more Bitcoin to have larger blocks while retaining this idea that, that uh, you can still use it without participating in one of these networks in order to, to achieve the type of thing you're trying to do? Okay, so for example, like the privacy concerns that you are talking about, like I'm sure that there are features you would like in Bitcoin, and I'm sure that there are features that will eventually be put into Bitcoin or strapped on top 
that you will not like. Would it not be better to a certain extent to have Bitcoin light and Bitcoin dark and have them maybe be compatible, maybe not, uh, you know, through side chains? Again, stuff like this might be possible with more ease than it is now. I think it'll just shake out again in the market because just as there might be sort of natural or market forces that are pressuring Bitcoin in the direction of diverging into two species, light and dark or whatever. What do people call Gavin's proposal, like XBT or, or not XBT? It's uh, yeah, Bitcoin XT. Oh, Bitcoin XT. Yeah. Yeah. And that actually is an interesting example because Bitcoin XT is compatible with Bitcoin. They use the same tokens. It's just there are some slightly different technical rules when it comes to the XT client and they update it faster too. We've actually been with Tokenly thinking about um, switching to it because part of this stress test has caused some real issues for counterparty-based services. And uh, Bitcoin XT is indeed much faster to do updates and cares more about projects like this. Just as there are evolutionary or market pressures for certain features in Bitcoin, there might be evolutionary or market pressures for Bitcoin to diverge into species that are compatible or maybe at first compatible and then go their separate ways later on down the line. And there might be pressures for Bitcoin to stay as just one thing because there's strength in the herd or strength in numbers. I'm kind of taking this evolutionary analogy like way too far, but you see what I mean? I mean, it, that question will will shake itself out too of whether there need to be different flavors of Bitcoin that may or may not be compatible with each other or whether it just stays as kind of one unified entity. Bitcoin probably does wind up looking more like a natural population, essentially. Mm -hmm of a certain type of, you know, Bitcoin users, basically, yeah. than it does looking like something, you know, like a software project where there's a leader and there are people who buy the software and then our customers, that relationship really doesn't exist. It really is more like a peer. I mean, I guess that's just peer to peer technology in general, though. It definitely is. And peer to peer networks. I mean, David Irvine from uh, MateSafe has made this analogy a ton. I mean, he's basically a biologist at this point, having studied insects and ants and how they cooperate and different species in nature and how they solve certain problems and then applying those lessons to software design and development. And yeah, I really do think a peer-to-peer -peer network like Bitcoin is a lot like a group of organisms. Hey folks, at long last the vision I've been pursuing with my company Tokenly to make tokens built on Bitcoin more usable and thus more useful to businesses and individuals is finally becoming real. The first week of July, we rolled into our alpha release of our token empowerment ecosystem. Today, I want to tell you about one of our first users, Contraband Coffee, and one of the first Tokenly bulk discount programs. Longtime LTB listener and owner-operator Nathan runs Contraband as an artisan, small-batch coffee importer and roaster. They have a real-life store on Larkin Street in San Francisco, but much of their business is about shipping freshly roasted beans direct to consumers. Buying premium coffee shipped by the pound can be an expensive proposition, so when a customer buys four pounds at a time, you save quite a lot on shipping. For reasons we know and love, when you buy with Bitcoin, you save even more versus paying with a credit card. So here's where the token comes in. Nathan created a contraband, all capital letters, token that is redeemable on demand for four pounds, your choice of fresh roasted contraband beans, shipped free anywhere in the continental United States. 
but to get the price, you need to buy at least two tokens. This is the most basic a bulk discount program will ever be. When you pay with a credit card, it costs $70. When you pay with Bitcoin, it costs about $65. And when you buy two redeemable contraband tokens, they cost $58 each. A quantity discount is pretty straightforward, so why use a token at all, you might be asking. Well, because just buying one or two with Bitcoin would mean that either you have to take delivery of all eight pounds at once, or that contraband would owe you another four pounds at some point in the future. And either them or you would have to keep track of that so-called off-chain solution. By giving customers back redeemable tokens that can be purchased in advance of redemption, you get the best of all worlds. The merchant's paid up front, and the customer not only gets the best price possible, but actually has something with a defined value, not subject to Bitcoin price volatility, that can be given or sold or gifted to anyone without concern of fraud or foul play. Redeeming your contraband token is as simple as paying with Bitcoin, and actually during checkout, you'll select if you want to pay with Bitcoin or contraband. In the not-too-distant future, you can expect to see payment options supporting all shapeshift altcoins and even credit card payments via Stripe, integrated alongside Bitcoin and contraband at checkout. So if you're a prudent coffee drinker, enthusiastic early adopter, or just curious, head over to letstalkbitcoin.com slash coffee to check out the contraband swap bot. And a big shout out to Nathan for being the first bulk discount redeemable token that we've yet seen. To learn more about the work we're doing at Tokenly, head to tokenly.com to read our ideas blog and see a walkthrough of the basic Tokenly ecosystem. If you have questions or want to get involved, email adam at tokenly.com. On an unrelated note, the magic word for episode 231 is redeem. That's R-E-D-E-E-M. Redeem. You've got until the 25th of July to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. Thanks for your attention. Let's rejoin the conversation now. Did you want to talk about the tone of the debate or like the level of discourse, you know, like the contentiousness of it? I don't know. I just don't know if it matters that much because I don't think I mean, like, so, OK, so we're, we're talking here about whether or not it's worth discussing the level of discourse that was going on in this debate, because there have been a lot of name call. There's been a lot of name calling. There's been a lot of insults thrown against very, very, very respectable developers who have contributed just a ton to this project and to many other projects, too. And it's not just restricted to one side. Both sides have been doing it. And it mostly hasn't been the devs. It's been, you know, like, People who are vested in one side's argument and then they think that defending it by insulting the other guy's team is like somehow going to make their point. So, I mean, like, I don't know if it's worth discussing that because, again, if it's just a population of people, then what really can we expect besides that? Yeah. And what does it matter? Because calling a developer a name is not going to matter in the long term. Like those evolutionary pressures are so much stronger and they don't come from one person or even a small group of people. They come from the aggregate of everything that's happening in the Bitcoin space right now. Especially on that note, very interesting to note that what the, the type of pressure that is being applied is going to have its own evolutionary impact, right? It's going mm-hmm. to mean that devs who are thin-skinned and can't take the, you know, the criticism, whether warranted or not, are not going to be very public devs or not be devs to the project at all. Yeah. And so we'll wind up with thicker-skinned devs as time goes on, simply because it's just a requirement of working on the project. It's all really interesting. I really can understand the fears and the uncertainty, uncomfortability or discomfort of sort of not knowing what's going to happen and not knowing if Bitcoin is going to be able to keep flying and stay afloat, keep handling everything it needs to do to survive. Everything in life is like that to a certain extent. 
you got to live in the present moment. I'm getting completely woo woo here, but you know, I think we have to just like embrace the uncertainty and trust that it will work out. Everybody take a chill pill, do some yoga. <laughs> you know, it's all going to yeah. be fine. I really, I really do think that. And that's my non technical opinion. I think there are lots of smart people thinking about this problem who are going to be able to take care of it. And I don't think there's much I can personally do to influence or control the outcome. So I'm not even going to try. I'm just going to let it go and trust that it, it will all work out. I think that's probably the wise approach to take. What I'm seeing right now, again, like it'll be really interesting to watch the next one of these issues that comes up. I think it'll be much more informative than this one. This one has really set the stage, I think, for what future major contentious changes look like. But if this is the sort of way that these are going to go, then I will be shocked if in 10 years there is just one, you know, Bitcoin. There will probably be several. Because again, at some point, you're going to get to a place where the side that's going to lose that, con- you know, that's going to lose that argument isn't going to be happy about it. And when they're not happy about it, the option will be, okay, how many of us are unhappy about it? Can we constitute a network that's larger than any other altcoin out there besides Bitcoin? And again, if it's a big deal issue, then they actually might get that. Any fork that starts from Bitcoin would replicate holdings too. That's another thing that's interesting to note about this is that you would not like have a new Bitcoin assigned or whatever. There would be a new type of Bitcoin, but everybody who's already vested in the first chain that gets forked are going to also be equally vested in the second chain. So again, there's a lot less friction when you're giving people the same money on a chain that might offer a feature that they think is really important, or that frankly, uh, almost more importantly, that doesn't offer a feature that they think is really important not to offer. Thanks for listening to episode 231 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for this episode was provided by Stephanie and Adam. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. For those of you still with us, today's episode was a little short, so I'd like to take the time to share with you two songs. These have lyrics, so I can't play them on the show proper, where we only use instrumentals. But as life goes by, I find certain songs resonating with me, and these are the ones that over the last few months have been speaking to me. These tunes come to us from the just-released self-titled debut album from the Free Descendants of Man. This first song features an unauthorized cameo by LTB favorite Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Enjoy. Deliver a proper water bearer, elephant rider, wandering spirit, element preparer. I double dog dare ya. I double dog dare ya. Time in you. 20. 21, 21, 21, 22. We've been standing circles on a flat square paper leaf. I'm in a raising the toast and the giving the praise and the people that pray for peace. I was away at sea, but now I'm close to shore. The turtles breaking from the shell, but it coast to coast, the world was yours. But I woke up from this dream, but it wasn't real. Wasn't supposed to tell you how it felt, unless that's how it feels. If it doesn't ring a bell, any bell that cracked this liberty is metaphorical. It's a soliloquy. I saw my lightning in a bottle, had to sell it though, but I wished I could have kept it for an extra second. Let it go, and I said it so, and it made it so, so made it so apparent. If I concentrate my eyes, I'll light a fire and where I'm staring now. Staring at the wall up from this huge glass house, looking like an old man who can't see and I can't see out. Staring up at a time on the wall, at a time on the time on the wall is now, and I might just fall out the walls in a glass house, crashing my mind is rolling. Check, 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 check
transformation Would you forget what you turned into? Resume the meditation I'm placing baby steps across the continental Congress's initial claim Arrest that man for passing out the pamphlet This hand's behind his back He tied the ladder to the chimney But did not adjust his lap When he fell, he had the bath and ball Catch another breath and right before me If the ground he watches life escape And left out of the window in the ceiling When he felt like Michael Douglas He kept falling in repeat Like it was a movie scene or something When he finally was free He flew, he floated in suspension Like it was a new beginning And the movie had just ended All his friends had gathered there It was a spectacle, it was a miracle Brighter than a meteorite Right, right, in your eyes When I stare at you in the airlessness Broke the smoke, sat atop the trees And carried water to the bubble Walks and watched the fucking breeze We had based concepts That are not tied to any tangible goods That are used to fund war That are issued by central banks With income taxation directly out of a worker's paycheck is a 
How do you know if you're the only one? You know who knows, you know, you know, you know who knows, you know, you know, so you know. Cause each and everyone deserves some peace. That was The City Swallows by the Free Descendants of Man. If you like what you heard, you can find their debut album at freedescendantsofman.com. There will be a link in the show notes. See ya.